Welcome to the Tinnily Talks podcast, where we dive into the common legal issues facing today's community associations. Whether you're a manager, board member, or homeowner, you're sure to pick up on some nuggets of advice to help you build a successful community in this ever-evolving and changing world. Hello, and welcome to Tinley Talks. I'm Ramona Acosta. And I'm Steve Tinley. And today we're talking about exclusive use common areas with Jeremy Wilson of Professional Community Management. Jeremy's been in the community management industry since the late 90s. He served as the 2017 president for the Community Association Institute's Greater Inland Empire Chapter Board of Directors. And in 2015, he received the Manager of the Year Award, as well as the President's Choice Award, for his contributions to the chapter while serving as the treasurer. He's achieved the PCAM, Professional Community Association Manager, and the coveted LSM, or Large Scale Manager, designations, and currently serves as PCM's Vice President of Client Success. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah, welcome, Jeremy. Pumped to have you. So, you know, the other thing that I forgot to mention in your bio is that you're also on CAI's National Faculty. That's correct. Yes. And um, and you teach the M100. With you a lot. Yes. <laughs> Quite frequently. So one of the things that um, that comes up, I find frequently um, when I do the M100, I don't know about you, is exclusive use common area. And Steve, I know when we do our board leadership seminars um, and manager trainings, this tends to come up, I think, a lot for you as well. And this whole idea of exclusive use common area and is it common area or is it part of the unit because it's exclusive use? And so... Yeah, I kind of want to go over that definition a little bit today and kind of um, clarify some of the confusing bits about that because I think so many boards and so many managers get so hung up on exclusive use and it exclusively services the unit. And so therefore, whose responsibility is it? So Steve, can you kind of give us just a general definition of what exclusive use common area is? Absolutely. So yeah, exclusive use common area, and you're right. I mean, for... Since I joined the industry, you know, over a decade ago, exclusive use common area was one of the issues that right away I could tell a lot of people were having trouble with. They were conflating the idea of what's a unit and exclusive use common area. Uh, but to this day, I mean, every month there's something in our office where we're having to educate a you know management professional or a board member on what is exclusive use common area. Right. So taking a step back, and this is you know primarily applicable in condominium developments. So when you have a condominium. In California, 99% of the time, it's an airspace condo, right? So what the homeowner owns, right, the unit owner owns is a block of airspace that's bounded by the unit's perimeter walls. That's what they own. But then there'll often be common areas that seem like they're part of the unit because only that owner has the ability to use it. And what are they most often, right? Balconies, porches, decks, in some cases, even, even yards or patios. But those are not part of the unit. If I'm the unit owner, I don't technically own the balcony. What I do own is I own an easement or a right to use that balcony and the ability to exclude other people in the community from using what I would consider my balcony. But the underlying balcony itself is actually common area. That is something that the association owns and controls and maintains and insurers. So when people think, well, I have a condominium and this is my balcony, yeah, it's, quote, your balcony to the extent that you get to use it to the exclusion of others. But for all intents and purposes, it's really common area that the association has the ability to, to regulate, right? Well, that's why we can pass, you know, different rules prohibiting things like barbecues or smoking on the balconies, right? Things that we might not be able to do on the inside of the units. And the association also has a repair and maintenance obligation that I know we'll get into a little bit later uh, in the program broad definition of exclusive use common area. It's a portion of common area 
that is reserved for the exclusive use of one or more, but less than all of the owners within the community. So that balcony is still technically common area, but it's considered exclusive use common area because you as the owner have the right to use it and nobody else in the community does. That's that's the definition of it. Yeah, and I remember, um, this was several years ago, but a friend of mine and I, um, I think we were, both of us in the industry, were talking to you because he lives in an HOA and he was getting into a parking dispute with his HOA because he has carports and he was backing his truck up in, into the carport. And I kept saying, but is it deeded to the unit? And he said, yes, it is. And you kept saying, well, but it's still common area. Yeah, that might be his assigned parking space, but don't forget, it's still common area. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that that if we're going to have some kind of takeaway at the end of the day, it's common area first. Exactly. Right? It's common area, and there's just an exclusive right for one member or a couple members to to use it. But the association retains the, the jurisdiction and control over it. And that's another great example, Ramona, right? Carports, right, or assigned parking spaces. Mm-hmm. Less and less often we're seeing in modern developments that you actually own your parking space or your carport. Rather, no, it's actually exclusive use common area. So it's still common area. The association controls it, maintains it, repairs it, but it's assigned for your exclusive use. That's where you can park your vehicle. Yeah, I think you hit around the head with your definition of using it like or thinking of it as an easement. Mm-hmm. You don't own it, but you have a right to access it and use it for your private benefit, but you're, not, you're never the owner of it. The association exactly. retains it. Yeah. Well, and for those that are listening, what's an easement, right? Well, in a, any association, let's say you have private streets. You as the homeowner, you don't own the street. You have the right to use it. The association owns the street, but you have an easement right to use it. The same thing for exclusive use common area, but just what makes exclusive use common area unique is that the people who get to use it usually are just you as the owner and nobody else. Mm -hmm. But it's still common area. So I'm a manager, and I have a maintenance request. And one of the things that you mentioned was the boundaries of the unit. How, you know, it's, it's an airspace condominium, how do I know what the boundary of the unit is? I'm looking at a termite report. Is the attic part of the boundary of the unit, or is it part of common area? How do I define that? Yeah, it's um, it's tough. I have to give the uh, you know the, the the tacky lawyer answer here, and and the answer is it depends. Right. And the more let's go with just the most common scenario. Right. Well, first you're going to go to the condominium plan. The condominium plan is actually prepared by the association's developer at its inception, and those things are very helpful because they show the boundaries. Uh, of the units, and there'll be details explaining when the common area starts, when the unit starts. So, for those communities that are listening, especially management professionals that are listening, that are working with condominium communities, it's important. I know we always request that when we take on a new client, where's the condominium plan? Oh, we don't have the condominium plan. Well, let's get it because oftentimes it's it's very helpful. Um, but if you have that maintenance request, thinking, okay, well, where does my unit end and common area begin? Well, right now we're inside of our conference room and we're talking. If this was an airspace condominium unit. 99% of the time, the unit is going to start at the interior finished surfaces. So there's paint on the walls, there's carpet on the floor, right? There's paint on the ceiling. Those are the boundaries, those finished surfaces. That's where your unit, that's where that boundary is. Once you get beyond that paint into the actual drywall or beyond the carpet into the subfloor, you're no longer within the boundaries of the unit. That is now common area. So for those homeowners and condominiums that want to know, okay, well, where I have to issue a maintenance request, is this my thing to deal with? Well, chances are if it's on the exterior of your unit, right? Or if it's actually behind the walls, that's how you know that even though it's, oh, it's my unit and is that pipe in the wall my pipe? Well, no, not necessarily. If it's behind drywall, chances are that it's common area or potentially exclusive use common area, depending on how the documents classify it. 
Jeremy, does, does your management company, do you get the condominium plans when you're taking over an association? Yeah, we require them. We're, we're onboarding a new client. We always ask for them. Same with the developers. They're one of the first things that we see and get our hands on, make sure our, our managers are familiar with them so they can answer these inevitable questions that are going to be coming up. We know it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find that that's the, the one document. You get the CCNRs, you get the bylaws, you may or may not get the articles, but if there's ever a document that's missing, it's typically it's the condominium plan. And I think people just kind of don't know what to do with it, yeah. what it's for. Uh, a lot of times we don't need them, but we're constantly surprised the number of times where they are helpful, especially in right. a maintenance dispute or a maintenance issue. Okay, where does the unit start? Because determining where the unit starts versus the common area starts determines who's responsible to ensure or maintain that item. Mm-hmm. We've seen some condominium plans where it actually has the balcony as part of the unit. So the association has been maintaining that balcony as though it's exclusive use common area. I don't begrudge them for doing that. I mean, that's, you know, usually the vast majority of the situations. But upon further reflection, looking at it, no, wait a second. These these balconies are actually part of the units. And under the documents, this is something that the owners uh, should be responsible for. And sometimes it works the other way around as well. That's why those condominium plans are helpful. Exclusive use common area, you might find that in your governing documents. You might find that in civil code, typically. Yes. And if I understand this correctly, most of the time when we're talking about exclusive use common area, um, especially when we're talking about like plumbing and whether or not it's a plumbing line or a serve or a sewer line that exclusively services a unit, we're basically t- we're talking about if it's going to benefit that individual unit owner, it's typically something that the homeowner has access to, right? Mm-hmm. Like if the homeowner is going to have a maintenance responsibility to maintain this component, they should have easy access to it, right? So in the civil code, it's defining common areas, defining porches, balconies, rear patios, right? Things that they can just easily access. Things that they can access. Exactly. So this issue most often comes up in in plumbing, right? Or water intrusion issues, which is why I wrote that white paper a couple years ago. What is water damage claims in condominium communities, right? Understanding how insurance works. Because we had a lot of boards that were operating under this assumption and, you know, in their defense, I think there were attorneys in our industry that took this position for years and now it's been proven not to be the case that even if there is a fixture that's outside the boundaries of your unit, right, in this hypothetical, let's say there's a pipe in the wall, okay, my unit stops at the wall, but there's a pipe inside of it, that's common area, but if that pipe only provides water to my unit, a lot of communities were treating that well. No, because it exclusively serves your unit. That's right. It is exclusive use common area that you're then required to maintain and repair. And just conceptually, we always had an issue with that to say, okay, we don't want homeowners piercing into walls and performing utility repairs and modifications, especially if the job that they do could impact neighboring units. But beyond that, looking at how the civil code defines exclusive use common area, it mentions things like shutters awnings, doorsteps, window boxes. The common thread of all of these things that the code defines is that these are areas that a homeowner can access easily. They don't have to pierce through a wall or pierce through a foundation subfloor in order to maintain a pipe or a drain line that, quote, exclusively serves their unit. And that's actually was the exact same fact pattern in the Dover Village case, which kind of blew the, the whole lid off of this, I think, really silly understanding that, well, if there is a pipe that's in a slab foundation or behind a wall... Homeowner, it's your responsibility because it only serves uh, your unit. In that case, the court looked at it and said, no, wait a second, how the civil code operates and how these governing documents operate for the community, which are similar to virtually every condominium community's governing documents, this is an exclusive use common area. This is common area regardless of how many units it, quote, serves because it's outside the boundaries of the unit. The homeowner doesn't have 
have access to it. Yeah, definitely a hot topic in the late 2000s when these questions were coming up so frequently. Uh, and that was the onset of the maintenance matrixes mm-hmm. to really try to help clarify mm-hmm. who really had the responsibility here. Yeah, that was, a, that was a big one for us in the industry for some time. What's your experience now? Do you feel like uh, management professionals boards now are becoming a little bit more uh, familiar with or at least receptive to the idea? I said, wait a second, this whole idea of whether or not it exclusively serves the unit, that's not the be-all, end-all. You actually have to look at the documents. Yeah, I think so. I think we see uh, the profession itself moving in a more professional uh, understanding of what these are really about, the exclusive use common areas, and taking a more uh, common sense approach. It, it, exactly, you said it. You don't want your homeowners piercing the walls, you know, jackhammering their slabs out. You want the association to take control and actually treat the property as if it's, you know, a, a use for the entire community, get the right vendors in there, the right actual quality of work happening, and not having a homeowner bringing their own people, try to make their own things themselves, make their repairs, you know, have their brother make that. You just don't want that. You mm-hmm. want the professionals to actually handle it because it's common property. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't, don't you find that it tends to be the communities that are 20 plus years old that haven't been assessing appropriately, haven't been reserving appropriately, that really want to shift these maintenance responsibilities of, of the exclusive use common areas to the homeowners where you're seeing more and more of these communities that have a series of slab leaks that they haven't properly funded for that want to shift that responsibility onto the, want to shift those plumbing leak responsibilities onto the homeowner or they want the homeowners to resurface those balconies because they haven't been funding for them appropriately. Mm-hmm. And when you come in as a management company or as a law firm and you, and you try to explain to them, no, this is association responsibility, suddenly it's, well, we don't have the money for that. We can't afford that. How are we, how are we supposed to do that? Yeah, we've certainly seen our share of those as well. And the board's being blinded by the invoices coming in and not the actual approach that should be taken to take care of the, the repairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, a challenge. We'll see communities, deferred maintenance, their communities leaking like a sieve, right, because they have mm-hmm. failing plumbing infrastructure, and they somehow think financially it's going to be more beneficial for the association. When we say the association, what is it really? It's just a collection of homeowners, right, with, mm-hmm. with common resources that they're using to keep the building flow. Yeah, it's going to be financially better for us if we try to push this off to the homeowners, and then we'll have homeowners will fight it from time to time. So we'll waste money on attorneys' fees, right? Which is what I hate, and then that's why I have the conversation with them. I say, if you continue to adopt this approach, not only is it wrong, but the only beneficiary is going to be our law firm because we're going to be sitting here fighting these losing battles with you. But that aside, yeah, let's let the homeowners perform these repairs and do this, and and as though the association's saving money. Well, no, wait a second. If you just assess appropriately and understand what the association's obligation really is, and that obligation is not to keep assessments low, the obligation is actually to maintain the infrastructure. Right. In the long term, just by the buying power, having it done right in a group of people, I mean, it's going to work better in the long term. So, yeah, each individual homeowner might have to pay a little bit more in assessments, but you're going to have less homeowners that get hit with these catastrophic repair bills and have to fight with the association or their insurance carrier just because they want to have their unit put back together after a plumbing leak. Completely agree with you on that. Yeah, and I think, Jeremy, you and I taught at M100 recently, um, and I saw the chats going back and forth. It was a virtual program, and so I think I was speaking, and he was in the chat room. And I'm finding that board members and even new managers, they get caught up in this principle that, no, it's the homeowners. The homeowners should have to pay for that. The association shouldn't have to take care of that. That's the homeowner's balcony. That's the homeowner's pipe. Mm -hmm. The homeowner did that. And it's, it's really a shift of mentality. Um, and, you know, and Steve, you work with a lot of 
boards that have been functioning in a certain way for a certain period of time. How do you how do you teach them? How do you train them to shift that perspective? Like what you hear so far? Make sure to subscribe to the Tinley Talks podcast at tinleylaw.com and never miss an episode. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. Well, I think a lot of times it's understanding what the fear is. Okay, well, if the association is responsible for this, then it's going to cost us a lot of money, or this is the most often scenario. Let's say it's a, a deck issue. Well, the waterproofing membrane is the owner's responsibility to maintain, right? That's part of maintenance. Then you have to explain to them what the code means and what maintenance really is. Mm-hmm. When, when we say maintain a balcony, what we think is it's a, a, a skill that can be or a task that be, can be performed by an unskilled individual using household tools. So they can wash it off with a hose. They can keep it broom swept clean. Some documents might require the owner to paint the inside of the balcony railing. Easy stuff to do. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about applying a waterproofing membrane, right, that requires a contractor with a specialized license using specialized materials. And it's important that it be done appropriately because that substructure, the support structure, is the association's responsibility to ultimately take care of, which is why, you know, the association needs to be involved. So the second we start having something that needs to be performed by a licensed contractor using specialized tools, no longer are we in the bucket of quote-unquote maintenance that's actually a quote-unquote repair that needs to be performed by the association. It's always been the case. Fortunately, uh, the civil code was amended a few years ago to really clarify that point, that exclusive use common areas are to be repaired by the association, let alone whatever superficial maintenance the owner has to be performed. So explaining that to them, right, okay, well, I understand the legally, but what does it mean for our practice? Because if the association undertakes the responsibility of doing all the waterproofing, which Steve, you're telling us we have to do anyway, and yeah, that's right, you have to do that. Well, what do we do in situations where the homeowners, they just, they neglected, they have, you know, potted plants out there, they have their pets that are going to the bathroom out there, we're just going to bleed money. Well, there's a way to deal with that, right? There's a way to deal with that. If we have to perform repair because of some negligent act that the homeowner uh, undertook, then we can assess the homeowner for that. And there's ways in which we can disclose this to the homeowners. We have a lot of communities that are dealing with the same issue where we adopt these deck maintenance and care policies or work with their waterproofing vendor. Hey, the material that we've applied, what should the homeowners do? What should the homeowners not do? And they kind of give us a guideline on how the surface should be maintained. We put that in a rule, an operating rule. We call it a deck maintenance and care policy. And we disclose it to the homeowners. We send it out to them. And this way, if we have a homeowner that has heavy potted plants or leaves standing water, or has their dogs or cats out there going to the bathroom, we now have a governing document that we can use to say that the homeowner violated it, and for that we're levying a reimbursement assessment. Uh, I can't stress how important that is. Yeah, I mean, it's just, and it's Great. easy. Honestly, for us, it, it kind of takes the lawyers out of the work because now <laughs> management and the board is armed with a tool. Well, how do we deal with this? Well, we have a policy that we adopted, so let's just follow the policy. Same thing with a water intrusion issue. When do we call insurance? You know, How does a deductible get allocated? All of these types of things that we've covered in podcasts with the insurance professionals. They might seem scary, but if you boil it down to black and white wording, it's it's really not that complicated if you understand that there's approach, a logical approach to do that. It's not going to be a very easy or consistent thing for the board just to kind of put its head in its sand and say, well, we, uh, we're worried about the expense, therefore we're just going to tell homeowners that this is their thing to deal with as though that's going to be best for our community in the long term, and it never is. Well, I think the easiest thing for me as, as a manager was, is it structural? Is it part of the structure? Or is it part of the unit? And we're talking about an airspace condo. I mean, you're talking about contents when you're talking about a unit, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about 
paint and carpet and all of the things that the homeowner then fills that unit space up with. But Mm -hmm. when we're talking about common area, we're talking about structure. Exactly. And so for waterproofing a balcony, we're doing that to protect the structure. Exactly. If we have a water pipe that bursts, that's part of structure. Structure. Yep. You know, slab leak is structure. And so I think if you can kind of just remember that it, it makes it clarifies it a little bit easier, even in the carport situation. You know, my friend isn't going out there and, and replacing two by fours and four by fours on that carport structure. He's just parking in it. Mm-hmm. He's not resurfacing it. He's not restriping it. Yeah. And do you right. want him to do that? Do no. You, do you want do you want an individual homeowner with whatever person they want to hire to do that type of work? And of course, there's some homeowners out there that'll do it right, but more often than not, they don't. <laughs> right. And then what happens? There's a damage. There's an issue. Someone wants to put a you know solar panel on it, and then it just creates a dispute. And again, that's where we get frustrated because as attorneys, we step into the situation and we're just like, it's difficult because we like to add value. Right. And this situation is the only value we can add to the community. And a lot of times they think is we'll make the homeowner pay for this. Well, no, really the value that we can add is really changing your understanding of how this should operate. So in the future, you're not going to have these disputes. You can assess properly and you have less situations where you have, you know, homeowner versus board or homeowner versus homeowner. Right. It's very predictable. It's disclosed to everybody. And that stability is just best in the long run. Well, and honestly, if you think about it as a as a homeowner, you have the option to purchase a condominium or to purchase a single family home. I know that in California, you know, that option is not we don't all have that same option. <laughs> well, maybe you can purchase uh, both at the same time. Right. If this lot splitting bill gets. Enacted, right? you know? But, but you know, back in the day, um, you know, and I think for those that, that can afford it, you know, you might decide to buy a condominium because through your assessments, the association is taking care of that roof and those streets mm-hmm. and those balconies and that plumbing and all of those things that you would have to pay for by yourself mm-hmm. if you own a single family home. And so it just makes more sense that all of these things would be part of the, the assessments. Yeah, that's that's the point. In the long term, what's better, right? We can push these costs on the homeowner. Okay, so in reality... I had to pay for this water damage thing or I had to pay to repair things that the association says I had to do, which really weren't mine. So when all of a sudden done, my cost of ownership at the end of the year is significantly greater than it would have been had I just paid a little bit higher level of assessment. And the association was actually making sure that this was done using its economies of scale to bring professionals in to deal with it. Absolutely correct. I think what's uh, critical on our side from the management perspective is understanding the definition of maintenance versus repair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's a stigma that still is troubling. For most management and most people out there, really understanding what maintenance really means in, in the context of speaking of exclusive use common areas. We're not talking about, you know, digging in and making things happen and getting dirty. It's more about cleaning and, you know, keeping the status quo of it and not actually yeah. getting into the property itself. I always say a broom, a hose, and a paintbrush. Yep. If you can't do the job with either of those three tools, then that's how you know you're not maintaining something. You're actually repairing it. Well, and I think this is something that maybe semantically we in the industry need to correct our language because up until AB 968 that made that distinction between maintenance and repair and replacement, Mm -hmm. everything was maintenance. Everything was in the maintenance bucket. We called it maintenance. And even to this day, we call it a maintenance matrix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe it should be a repair matrix. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or try to think of some better term and even take Matrix out of it. I think of Keanu Reeves every time someone, <laughs> someone mentions it. You know, a maintenance Matrix, oh, one of those fancy tables with check boxes. And you're surprised. I mean, some communities, they'll be operating under it. They had this maintenance Matrix, and to their credit, they were proactive or their prior counsels. Proactive. Let's get a Matrix on the books, and it might have been done in 2008, 2010. Right. But fast forward to now, 
yeah, that thing is not worth uh, not worth anything. It's you know it's totally backwards. We need to make some changes to it. So um, you know, management professionals boards, you're working with a community. There's so much pain that I think you can avoid by saying, hey, is it time to spend a couple hours and have legal counsel take a look at the maintenance matrix we've been operating under to make sure that everything is aligned with that you know as it should be or as clear as it should be. I mean, we've run into issues with roofs, AC compressor pads, how people define those things. Well, you know, that's, that's actually a really good point because as a firm, we always talk about you don't need to, you don't need to amend your CCNRs just because they're old. You don't need to amend your CCNRs just to comply with the civil code. The civil code is going to change every year. Mm-hmm. Put some rules and regulations together. Put a maintenance matrix together. But having said that then, because the civil code does change every year, mm-hmm. how often should, be, should managers and boards be reviewing these policies? Well, I think the maintenance and repair, especially for condominium communities in the wake of the balcony bill, now we're going to have to be performing these inspections. I think that that is a nice impetus to, to, to take, you know, relook at that. Um, the statutory change to 4775, when was that? That was a few years ago. Um, that's another reason to do it. Um, yeah, I'd say every few years and hopefully, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't require something that's that's a lot of tuning. But um, but yeah, just making sure that's the situation. And what's the idea? Oh, yeah. You know, spend a little bit of money now. But it reduces the need for management or the board, and we know that managers change, the board members change, making sure that the policies that are in effect to guide the board, whatever the board may be at that time now or three years from now, or to guide management, whoever the manager, account manager may be now or three years from now, those things are set in stone so it's not reinventing the wheel every time. So um, I think in the wake of the balcony bill and the change of the code, those communities that are that are dealing with these issues and are concerned about these things, I think it's a good idea to at least open the dialogue with, with legal counsel to see you know, if it's appropriate to take a, take a fresh look at it. Yeah, I agree with that. I might even recommend uh, aligning it with your on-site reserve studies. That makes every sense. Every three years or so, update, take a look at the policy, make sure it's still where it needs to be, and make the changes at that point in time. That's a really good point. So it's a reserve study there. Hey, let's make sure that we have a clear understanding of what our major components are, what the association's obligations are. Right. We haven't been reserving for balconies. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's that's going to be an issue, right? Especially right. now with these balconies. So um, I think that's a great point, aligning with your reserve study. Let's take a look at it, right? That's the really the biggest expense, right? When you think about it, right? Maintaining and repairing these common areas. So when we're doing our reserves, let's make sure that what we understand our operating approach should be with respect to what the association does actually comports with what their documents say and what the law is now versus what some might have interpreted the law, you know, even just a few years ago to be. Yeah, mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, you've mentioned the balcony bill a couple of times, and we actually have a separate podcast episode on SB three twenty six and the awesome. balcony bill. But do you want to just for those that are listening right now, can you give us a little snapshot of what that is? A little snapshot. <laughs> um, the long and the short of it is, we had the Berkeley balcony collapse. When was that? Now that was like five years ago. Now something right? like that. Something yeah. like that. Where I was an apartment owner. Um, where a group of college students were out on a balcony. The balcony wasn't being properly maintained. It was in a state of severe disrepair, and uh, the balcony failed, and there were some lives lost, which is just an unfortunate thing. And the legislature responded uh, under the idea that uh, both apartment owners and community associations are not um, doing a significant enough job to make sure that these exterior elevated elements, basically anything that people are supposed to walk on or use that's more than six feet off the ground, are being properly maintained and repaired. So a new inspection regimen has been added to the code that's going to require every condominium community with these exterior elevated elements to have a very substantial investigation and inspection performed. A report has to be issued and actually disclosed to the membership 
uh, to basically put the association on notice of what it needs to fix, what emergency items are there to make sure that these things are actually um, kept up to par. And I know there was a lot of resistance in our industry, I think, for reasons I still don't understand at the beginning. I mean, a lot of times we have that knee-jerk reaction, well, this is a new thing that the legislature is making us doing, which is frustrating, right? Uh, it's going to cost more money, which is also frustrating. But when you get to the substance of it, you know, what's the real purpose here? The real purpose here is to make sure that you know, people are actually safe. Safe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that this situation doesn't doesn't happen again. And when you boil it down to what this new statute is going to do and these inspections are going to do is, is really force board members to no longer put their head in the sand and just rely on a, a reserve study, but actually understand, no, your job is to maintain assets. And these types of assets, these elevated elements have a special significance because if they fail people could die you know it's not just mm-hmm. oh well if our landscaping fails we might not have enough money to plant it till next year or we don't have enough money to slurry coat our streets so it's going to look bad uh, for the next year or two years no if this we don't have the money we're not making sure that these things are repaired people could actually lose their lives so um that's that's the extent of it when's the first inspection due 2025 2025 um but one of the things that i found interesting about sb 326 was that you know if we go back to what the civil code says right now about what is exclusive use common area and it calls out balconies and then the legislature created this new piece of legislation went into effect i think last year Mm -hmm. but you have until 2025 to do your first inspection the legislature said yeah well balcony yes that's exclusive use common area we're not changing that section of the silver code but oh by the way association it's your repair and replacement responsibility Mm -hmm. you have a duty to go out and inspect it you have the duty to incorporate it into your reserve study. You have the duty to make the necessary repairs. And if you don't, and if there's an immediate threat to safety, then the local code enforcement has the authority to take care of that. Yeah. So for you know those communities or you know whether under prior management or prior legal counsel that were comfortable with a very liberal interpretation of maintain and say, well, exclusive use common area, those are balconies, and the homeowners have the obligation to maintain that, which means hands off, the association does nothing. You as the homeowner have to do everything. The legislature slowly, and now especially with 326, has said, no, 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 no. I don't care what your documents say. This is the association's responsibility to make sure that these things are in a proper state of repair. We're not talking about brooms and paintbrushes and hoses. We're talking about waterproofing. We're talking about structural components. Those are repairs. The association's obligated to do that. So for anybody who's still looking at this saying, well, it's exclusive use common area, Especially in the wake of 326's passage, I think that's a you know that's a really foolish position to take. So, Jeremy, what are you guys doing as a management company? Because again, um, it's been a few years since since I managed. But when I back in the day when I was managing condominiums, I mean, it was my portfolio was essentially twenty plus year old associations, deferred maintenance, underfunded reserves, assessments that were grossly below what they should be. As a management company, how are you addressing those types of situations? Because I feel like those are the associations that are running into these exclusive use common area problems. Yeah, so for Associa specifically, we've taken on a statewide approach. So we have aligned all of our five branches in Southern California with our Northern California branch as well. And we're doing a, a systematic approach for education from the executives to the directors, to the community managers, to the ACAMs. Uh, and that's already been underway for some time now. Uh, so we have follow-up and continuing education happening on what the impacts are, what our position as a management company is, and how to educate our boards. We've taken that a step further and not leaving that in the hands of our managers, but we've actually already preemptively set up those education sessions throughout the course of the summer this year uh, and have invited all of our board members 
across the state to start attending those. We've partnered with a firm that's helping us with the presentation and the inspection side and a cost analysis and that kind of thing. Uh, so we've taken a very aggressive approach to get on this very quickly. We started it uh, late last year and pushing pretty hard through the summer to get a, a good education piece out there across the board for all sides of the management as well as our boards. So this is specific to 326, education correct. related to the balcony bill. That's correct, yes. Got it. And then in terms of just general education, if you're, you know, work, you have a community manager um, says, hey, Jeremy, you know, we took on this new community and there's concerns because, you know, they're operating this way and it, it just doesn't seem right. How, I mean, what's your encouragement or, or advice to, you know, to those that not only in your company but outside your company that might be dealing with the same situation? What have you seen as the most successful approach to to change the uh, school of thought that a client might have. Sure, uh, and we even talked about it at the last M100. If you've got questions, ask. There's no bad questions out there. You know, the industry changes so much that even those that have been in the industry for a while, there's still things that we're like, hmm, good question. Thanks for bringing that up. Let us look into it a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we encourage even inside and outside of Associa, across the board, uh, even when speaking with CAI and CACM, uh, ask questions. You know, if you've got a question and you're not sure about it, or if it seems a little weird, or you just don't know the answer, ask questions. Let's dig into it. We'll partner you with the right person, whether that's an internal person or an industry professional that's external from you know our management company. We'll make sure we get the right answers and the right education pushed your way, so you can advise the client correctly. Mm-hmm. And in your experience, you know, approaching a client, Jeremy, we're so excited to work with you and your team community to you and right off the bat you find yourself in kind of a really tough position to say you've been operating this way and that's wrong and we have to raise your assessments or at least recommend that you do because this is a new state of thing what's your approach to kind of walk the board through that is it very just straight line you give you know kind of war stories horror stories on on you know the ramifications if they don't change their school of thought now what what advice do you the approach is different for each client uh some clients will like the black and white approach they just want you know get to the bottom of it, let's talk about what the real impact of the association is being, and let's start planning for it. Mm-hmm. What do we need to do in six months? What do we need to be in 12 months? And, you know, 18 and 24 months, where do we need to be at? Other uh, clients that we have are not that way. They want to hear a little bit more about the, the feely, touchy-feely. Why did this bill come into effect? You know, what really happened at Berkeley? How did the associations get looped into it when it wasn't an association that was initially a part of it? You know, So you kind of walk them through the rationale of the legislator and why it really took place. And then this is the education part of it where uh, now that it's passed, here's why we need to continue forward with it. You could certainly try to put your head in the sand and not pay attention to it, but that's just not an option any longer. You simply have to take action because the associations are put on notice mm-hmm. effectively through the bill and now civil code. You have to. You cannot you know, ignore it and turn away anymore, but you've got an obligation to take care of your association. Yeah. I like it when management can use the legislature as a tool. You know, you can say, well, we have to reserve for this because now we have SB 326. Or when you have a homeowner that is adamant that the board make a decision on something at the board meeting tonight and you have the ability to say, I'm sorry, but the law says that it has to be on the posted notice. We didn't give four days notice. We can't legally, we just can't. And so you have those opportunities to put the, the legislature in your toolbox. Mm-hmm. And a so, good tool. Let me see. Let me a good tool. A good tool because a lot of time in the industry, we use the legislator in that term in a bad way. Yes. They did this and they're pushing this again. And they're just gonna, here comes something else down the pipeline from Sacramento. But using it as actually a tool to our benefit and to the benefit of the client is also very important. Mm-hmm. I think that it, so that works for us in terms of the balconies. 
but the plumbing and the rear yards. And I had a situation come up recently where the association is built in such a way um, that the homes are on the bottom of a slope. So the common area comes is a slope, and it comes down, it comes down into the units. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it was built that way. It seems kind of backwards to me. But now you have common area runoff that's going into the backyards, and the association is saying, well, but that's that's exclusive use common area. That's your backyard. And I'm like, well, but it's a, still common area. It's A, it's exclusive use common area, and B, the water's coming from the common area totally. that you have to keep out. So I think those are the boards that we need to help the manager speak to because I think that the managers know and they understand what is right and, and what they're supposed to do. But I think sometimes, and especially with the younger managers, the newer managers, well, that's what the board wants. And the board doesn't want to raise assessments. So I'm not going to present a budget that has an assessment increase in it. And I'm afraid to advise the board because that's not what they want to do. That's not what they've been doing all this time. My association doesn't work that way. How, yeah. how, do, how do we encourage those managers? Today's episode is brought to you by Altera Assessment Recovery. Altera provides comprehensive attorney-supervised assessment collection services to community associations throughout California. Trust us with your collection needs. We'll get the job done, done right, and as quickly and efficiently as possible. Altera Assessment Recovery, we're the collection team you've been looking for. Well, that's a good point. And honestly, Jeremy, a point that you had earlier with kind of how we how we reference it just emotionally and the message that we convey to the client. If we always come from this understanding, and I, especially with the younger community managers, they just might be modeling what they hear by people that are, are a little bit more senior is client comes in, well, why do we have to do this? And the response is, well, I can tell the client doesn't want to do it. So let me empathize with that and say, I know this is terrible. That's just that terrible legislature that's making us do this. It doesn't make any sense. From the client's perspective, they might think, okay, well, I kind of hear that you're saying this is nonsense. We don't really need to worry about it. So how do we get around it without actually doing it, which I think is a missed opportunity. If if at the beginning, the client says, why are we doing it? And the manager had the education and the confidence and the support to say, well, it's very important why we're doing this. Fortunately, the legislature actually clarified this because in the long run, this is better for your community. And this is why we have to do that. I think all of a sudden the client has a totally different impression rather than this being just, oh my gosh, this is a headache that we have to deal with. Can we get around it with, oh, this is something very serious. Thank God I have a professional that's advising us the proper way to do it so that I feel more comfortable, right? It's all in how you signal it. And to your point, Ramona, I mean, we, we tell clients this all the time, especially clients that, you know, that are um, interested in developing a relationship with our firm that we don't currently represent. We say, listen, if we have the privilege of representing you, we don't represent you board members, you know, John, the board president, Martha, the board president, whatever your names are, we're going to be hired and retain to represent your corporation. And what that means is our job is to tell you as the board members what you need to hear, especially when it's not what you want to hear. So I think if you approach it from both of those perspectives, I'm telling you this, it's a good thing. This is not, oh, I'm sorry that this is another hoop that you have to jump Mm -hmm. through. This is what the legislature has and there's reason and there's rationale behind it, whether you agree with it or not. In our experience, it's beneficial for this. So let's develop the solution that way. I think if you frame it differently, I think managers would be uh, you know, less reluctant to, to tell the board something that they might not want to hear. If they frame it in a good way, they might say, oh, well, thank you for – no, I didn't want to hear that, but now I understand it and I appreciate it that you actually had the wherewithal and the professional capacity to tell me what I need to hear in this moment. Yeah, I agree. And encouraging those that are newer to the industry that knowledge is power. You know, having the ability to speak intelligently about what's you know new in the legislature or you know what's happened with civil code and why it's important to understand what maintenance versus 
repair is in the association and be able to speak to your board and advise them simply validates what we're there to do is to be a professional advisor. Exactly. And, and I think reminding reminding the managers, you know, I do it in the M100 and Jeremy, I've heard you do the same thing, is reminding these managers who the professional is, right? I mean, the board members are the volunteers and yes, they are the decision makers, but we serve a purpose sitting there in those board meetings and our job is to be that professional advisor and bring in legal counsel when we need to. Mm-hmm. That's that's why we wear the suit when we go to the board meeting because we're we're projecting that professionalism. We have the alphabet suit behind our names because, you know, we're yes. the, we're the professionals in there. They're the volunteers, and I think if we we have to look at ourselves as a professional in order before they will see us as a professional. Totally right. Not oh, why do we have to take care of this issue? Isn't it the homeowner's pipe? Yeah, I know it's silly, but the law changed now. It's arguable, and it's something that we have to do rather than. Well, no, I understand how you might think that way, but that's not how the law operates, right? And it's actually beneficial that the law doesn't operate that way because over the long term, your community is best served. So if you as a board are concerned about this, and we've had a few things, maybe we should talk to legal counsel. Let's put a policy in place. Let's deal with a water intrusion policy or a deck maintenance policy or you know how to, how to repair AC units with the responsibility of the homeowners. Prevent a solution rather than just empathizing with the fact that you think the board member thinks it's a headache and they don't want to hear about it. But what can you do to kind of excuse the fact that you have to do it anyway? I think if you flip the approach, people might be more successful. Yeah, present the solution. I agree mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the approach with the boards and and getting the boards to understand their fiduciary duties, what about those associations that continue? So we've we've reminded them, we've encouraged them, this is your responsibility. They're still failing to reserve. They're still failing to properly assess. Is there any liability exposure to the corporation and or to the directors for failing to fulfill those fiduciary duties? I mean, yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's exposure. I mean, we've got all these levels of insurance protection, which are there, which, you know, a lot of times gives the board members cover to really not do what they're supposed to do. But we've seen, you know, case law, it's whittled away more and more about that, right? We had that Palm Springs case where uh, the court said, I believe it was something to the effect of the business judgment rule. Um, you know, doesn't protect a willful ignorance or something to that effect, right? We've seen some other cases that have come out. Um, oh, Parth versus Villas. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we've seen situations like that where it's catching up and you have to advise the board. I mean, a lot of times we, you know, we talk about personal liability and the exposure associated with it. I know personally I've had to be in a position where a couple of our attorneys have been operating with a client that you lead the, lead the horse to, to the trough, but they won't drink. And not only that, not only will they not drink, but they'll run the other way and then, you know, tear the house. It's just something that's just so terrible that in our right, you know, just just consciously we say, listen, this is this is more trouble than it's worth. So let's just send a letter to the board explaining what the situation is, understanding how the board disagrees with it. And then we just withdraw from the client. I mean, I know it's a difficult thing for, you know, some firms or some companies to be able to take to just lose the client. But from from our standpoint, from a business practice, sometimes I think without that tough love, they won't get it. I've had it. Uh, I think one of those two clients I send that to, they call me, we'll, we'll do whatever you need to do. And they're like, okay, give them a second chance. And then all of a sudden they go back to their own ways because they think in their mind, their only job is to not raise assessments, right? And, it, and if they just can't learn from that, it's a, it's a, it's a tough position to be in because you can't really do your job ethically. Yeah, we take the same approach as well. Uh, we'll advise appropriately. And if they continue to not take the advice, uh, we make sure it's in writing what our position is and that we have advised them appropriately. Mm-hmm. And if the time comes where uh, you know transition needs to take place, then we'll assist the board in finding new management or, or, or something that better suits their intentions. But there's just too much on the line with 
you know, not having the knowledge and then not acting on what you're, you're supposed to be doing. Right, because I, SB 326 has put associations on notice with regard to the balconies. But, you know, going back to those plumbing repairs and, you know, the association that's leaking like a sieve and has $200,000 in their plumbing line item because they don't want to raise the assessments and they don't want to repipe. And manager has advised multiple times, and it's in the minutes. Mm-hmm. At some point, it's disclosed. It's it, it's in the budget. It's on your deferred maintenance disclosure with your annual budget package that goes out every year. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point, it comes to roost. And at some point, Absolutely. there's 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 thousands of dollars of a special assessment that gets assessed. And especially right now, in this day and age, homeowners are not afraid to sue. No, that's that's a great point. It's a litigation potential. I mean, a lot of times, association has a justifiable defense. We're sorry that the pipe burst in the wall. We didn't know the pipe was going to burst in the wall. There's nothing that we could do to prevent it. We're not going to go in everybody's unit every few months and poke open holes to make sure. But at some point, that argument doesn't hold water. What do you mean you didn't know that pipe was going to fail? Every unit around me has had multiple pipe failures. You guys have known about this for a decade and you haven't done anything about it, right? Which kind of removes that business judgment rule protection. And if, you know, I'm a plaintiff's attorney for a homeowner, what what am I going to try to do? I want to get as much money from my client as I can. What does that mean? I'm going to sue anybody who's touched this issue that has an insurance policy. I'm not only going to sue the association, I'm going to sue management. I'm going to sue the plumbing vendor. I'm going to sue everybody, right? Which is why I'm saying, you know, you, Jeremy, you're probably saying, listen, this exposure isn't you know, isn't worth it, right? As much as we would like to have this client, when they get sued, and it will be a when they get sued, we're going to get named in the lawsuit, which operationally presents headaches. Financially, it's a problem. You don't want to be uh, involved in that. So a lot of times it's best just to extricate yourself and and hopefully the you know the lesson is learned by the by the board or at least the the community hears enough about it to where they vote in new leadership and oftentimes that really what needs to happen they need to vote in new leadership. Yeah, thankfully those situations are rare, but they still are out there. Mm-hmm. They present themselves from time to time. Yeah, I know. I could see it coming up with the SB 326 with all these communities. I mean, communities that are managed by, you know, your company is right. They, with the education, they're going to be put on notice. Hopefully they'll deal with it. But I right. know there's going to be a host out there that are going to wait till the 11th hour to try to get this done. They're not going to be able to get it done. They're going to try to, you know, give it a half measure. And at some point, um, you know, it's going to come back to roost. And, and really, what's the big picture that, that boards need to understand? This isn't just a wasted exercise requiring you to spend money needlessly. This is the legislature compelling you to make sure that people are actually safe. It's not a bad value thing. to it. Totally. There legitimately is value to the under underlying issues here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Let's repair our roofing. Let's do these repairs because if we have a balcony collapse, the financial costs associated with that are going to be 10 to 20 to 30x. Catastrophic. Yeah, what it would have been from this. So let's do our job. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you all for listening. We'd like to thank Jeremy Wilson for your time and expertise. Make sure to visit our website at tinleylaw.com if you haven't already, where we break down this episode and link to our blog article, HOA Held Responsible for Deteriorated Pipes Within an Individual Owner's Unit. Then stay tuned for our next episode. To share or subscribe to the Tinley Talks podcast, visit us at tinleylaw.com. There you can find links to everything discussed in this episode, locate helpful resources, check out other episodes, and submit questions for future topics. And be sure to tune in next month for our next episode. As always, the views and opinions expressed by the podcast, its presenters and guests do not constitute legal advice. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast, please consult with your association's legal counsel. This is Tinnelly Talks presented by Tinnelly Law Group. Your community, your council.